we invite your attention to the 16th chapter of Luke this morning, if you have your Bibles. It's a great parable of the Lord, a very unique parable. It's often referred to as the unjust or unrighteous steward. What does it mean to be a spiritual steward today? We saw a little bit about that presented before us this morning already, what it means to protect those things which have been entrusted to us. Not to, How important is it? In this particular parable, we are going to look in particular about money, per se. And it's interesting that in this parable we'll see a little bit about how the Lord Himself views it. It's common language, isn't it? A parable, I'm reminding, reminded this morning, is something that we juxtaposition beside a truth. You know, some of you may know something about a paralegal or a paramedic. Uh, these are individuals with skill that work alongside the professional, the doctor, the lawyer. How important are they? They're very important. I've known paralegals that are probably more knowledgeable than the lawyer themselves. You know, they're all doing the work a lot of times, the nitty-gritty. So they're very accustomed to um, doing the work, although they may not have the certification and the lengthy schooling that it takes to be the professional. Well, parable is used in the same way. We have truth that is presented before us, and the Lord uh, will teach parables in a way in which they are earthly stories that convey a very important spiritual meaning or truth. Sometimes people refer to them as one single truth. I don't know. I think there may be, in many cases, a variety of truths. There's over 30 parables in the Bible. And uh, in many cases, probably a third of them refer to money or industry, farming, working, lost coins, Pounds, talents. So, you know, you get a picture of how the Lord views money just by reading His parables. It's much different than you and I look at it. You know, sometimes we look at it like, in and of itself, it's evil. Now, Paul didn't say that money was the root of all evil. He said the love of it is. So we could do that with almost anything. Not only with money, but we can do it with people. We can have idols out of anyone or anything that can get in the way of our worship to God. So money is not something that we should treat with a blind eye, as if it doesn't exist. <laughs> I know some religious people do that. They pretend to live in an isolated barrier of some form. They dress differently. They act differently. They may wear a hat. It's funny. They may exclude themselves. You can cave out yourself a nice little home somewhere in northern Africa, call it a monastery. But you know what you need to get along, even in the Alps or in northern Africa? You need money. Money is common language to all people in all times, in all places. It may look differently, but it's still important for you to get along in life. And having said that, the Lord Jesus Himself doesn't deny that very important fact. You remember on one occasion when it was time to pay taxes? I mean, who is going to get a tax bill and run down to Bel Air here in the municipal building 
and pull out the Bible and say, my pastor says these are greater riches and try to pay your tax bill. It just doesn't work. You need, you need some dollar bills. Money is critical. The Lord recognizes that and he uses it in order to convey certain truths that may help us out in this time world. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with it. Now, we could just take a few minutes and just read quickly this parable. And as you read it, I want you to pick out three people that are in the audience, or three types of people that are in the audience as we read this. I want you to take note of certain difficulties. In other words, things that just seem to contradict what we understand to be spiritual truths. On the surface, they seem to be at odds, if you will. And then I want you to look for a takeaway, a bottom line. I want you to look for something that is pivotal in understanding this parable. Don't get too caught up in all the little details. You know, sometimes people do that. They trip over themselves. They miss out the whole point because they center on some innocent reflection used or detail in this in the words. And although I'm kind of, you know, I'm guilty of that myself because I'll, I may pause a few places and point out a few things. We can have wrong understanding of the use of money. And I believe what we find here in this parable is how to get it right. Okay? And so he said unto his disciples, okay, there's one group. I said three, there's one. I'm giving you that one. I won't give you the next two. And he said unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. He squandered the master's goods. Now, obviously, you can, par- you can parallel this with Judaism per se. They've squandered the oracles of God which they were committed. We're not going to use it in that light today. And he called him and he said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, that th- uh, for thou mayest be no longer steward. So he's getting his pink slip. He's got to clear out his desk. He's got to be gone. But then, verse 3, the steward said within himself, here's the Bible's giving us some idea on the way he's thinking. What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away me the stewardship. I can't dig to beg. I'm ashamed to do that. I'm resolved what to do, which when I'm put out of the stewardship, that they may receive me into their houses. Now, who are they? Well, the next verse is going to explain who they are. He's got in his mind how he's going to benefit himself. How's he going to do it? I'm going to lose my job. How am I going to fix myself up now? So he called every one, verse 5, of his Lord's debtors unto him, and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And the fellow said, A hundred measures of oil. All right. Take the bill, sit down quickly, and write me 50. You owe me a hundred Pay me 50, you're done and clear. He said to another, how much you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. Okay, take thy bill and write 80. Four score, 80. And the Lord, here's the master, here's the businessman, here's, here's the owner. And the Lord commended, he approved of the unjust steward. 
because he had done wisely. For the children, then he says this statement, for the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. We see two major cultural divides. This is where we'll get mixed up in life. We kind of intermingle those cultural divides. I say unto you, make to yourselves friends. Okay, verse 8 is the shock. I've mentioned previously, where's the shock value in this parable? We already mentioned it. The Lord, the business owner, commended the action of the unjust steward. What he did. He said it was wise. But now here's another key point that is made by the Lord himself. Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. That has troubled many a commentary or a commentator. He, verse 10, that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust, obviously a reference to the, the previous guy, he that is unjust is least. In the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon who will commit to your trust the true riches, and if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. So the point of reference this morning, mammon is anything like property, money, things that you have in this life that God has given you. He said you cannot serve God and mammon. You've got to serve one or the other. And in the Pharisees now, here's four, verse 14. And the Pharisees, I can imagine, you know, the Lord sharing this parable and as he's speaking, everybody's turning and looking at the Pharisees because they were guilty. It was stamped all over them. Everything they did, they didn't serve God. They served the mammon of unrighteousness. And the Pharisees also who were covetous. Now the Lord's given us some information here. Here's some, actually the writer Luke is giving us, he's affording us into uh, this characteristic of the Pharisees. They were covetous. Nothing wrong with goods, is it? But what's wrong is when we covet them. When you ride by, when your travels and you see a big beautiful home, you know what you do? You thank God. That somebody is blessed to enjoy that home. You don't envy them. You don't covet that. You thank God for them. In many ways, you're thanking God for something they themselves don't. This is attributing praise to God. It's praiseworthy, if you will. He said, the Pharisees who were covetous heard all these things and they derided him. They derided him. That's a unique word, isn't it? We don't use that word much anymore. Literally in the Greek, it's thumbing your nose at somebody. I can draw you a picture that's very graphic. 
You know, it's blowing out your nose towards somebody with all the mucus. Very picturesque picture of turning your nose up at the Lord. This is what the Pharisees did to the Lord. They probably did it physically as well. And he said unto them, here's Jesus speaking again, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. And then I'll just read two more verses because I think there's a link here of of this particular verse here in the next one, which bridges the gap between the parable ahead or before it and what lies in the, in, the, in, the, in the front of it. He said, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. You know, we're pretty much like trees. You know, we grow, and a lot of times Bible truth to us when we're just a small tree, sapling, what do they call it, and it's just coming out of the ground. A lot of times, even as a younger, experienced person, we hear about truths, but we can't get our teeth or our arms around them, teeth into them or our arms around them. I think sometimes experience, as we grow into a greater tree, we eventually blossom and our blooms become beautiful flowers. If, you know, we really magnify the very name of whatever tree we're speaking about. The same thing with a Christian. A Christian best magnifies who he is or who she is when they grow into full spiritual maturity. But a lot of times when we're young, we read parables like this and you know, we want to sink our teeth into them, but we don't quite have the experience. But I can assure you this much. I wish I had known some of the truths that are being presented here in Luke chapter 16 about 35 to 40 years ago and applied them in my life. I might be in a different position that I am now because there's some very practical things here. And it's very good for us to dive into them. There's various characteristics when we think about this particular parable that we can make note of, and that is that true stewardship, and that's what we're talking about, that which we've been entrusted with. You know, how is it that we're to be a steward of the things that God has given us? That's what he's speaking about. This particular man wasted his Lord's goods. And that, at least that's what he was accused of. And so some of the particular characteristics of good stewardship is that it's praiseworthy to God. It's praiseworthy to whoever you're dealing with. You know, your particular business, you deal with people, it would be just terrible for you to make enemies out of your employer. It just doesn't work that way. And that's exactly what's going on here. He's got his pink slip, so he wants to leave a mark, but he's really concerned about himself. Are you going to hire somebody in your business who treats you ill? No, you're not. You're not going to do it. You're going to want to hire somebody that treats you right. And this... um, characteristic of being praiseworthy is something that the Pharisees missed out on. They were not praiseworthy to God. They were praiseworthy to themselves. Now, I think generally, if we look back in the Old Testament history, which we can do at another time, there's two very important things regarding the Pharisees that really moved them off mark after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of doing the wrong thing. I think they messed up in terms of property 
and position. In other words, they spoiled things. And you can see that. I think positionally, they were granted certain privileges as priesthood Levites that were not not granted to just everybody else. And in one particular uh, idea here is that the Pharisees, or the Levites, I should say, were given certain leeways. You know, let's say, for instance, there was a dispute, and the law really didn't cover that particular dispute. Well, they were to be considered the final authority, and whatever they said was the final word. And so they took that kind of a power, and they abused it so much so that they corrupted it, you see. And you can see easily how that might lean lead toward corruption because they were literally considered gods, if you will. Little g, these elders, these fathers were considered very important within the community of the believers. And the other thing that they kind of messed up on was property. And I can see this because I can see it in Christians today. They equate money and riches with spirituality. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. And God, you can trace this all the way back to Deuteronomy 28, where it speaks of, you know, if you do this, I'll do that. In other words, if you're obedient to me, your houses will be full. Your vineyards will be ripe. I mean, everything about you will be blessed. And you can see how that would have a tendency to lure toward, uh, you know, like a health and wealth gospel, which is preached today. To name it and claim it, you know. They would look at the Apostle Paul today, these particular super-Christians of which I speak, and literally cast um, disdain upon people like the Apostle Paul, who himself said he had no certain dwelling place. He was thirsty. He was naked. He was locked up. He was left for dead. So they would look at the, 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 the Apostle Paul and consider him a man of a lot. He had no faith. He had no faith. Look at him. And so we can see where the Pharisees really messed up. Now, by the time the Lord is addressing them, these Pharisees are standing among themselves. And you can see they've enriched themselves. And they're so much better than those poor beggars. You see where we're at? And so the Lord, He knows the heart. He said, that which is highly esteemed in your heart is an abomination in the sight of God. You're filthy in God's sight. That's what he's basically saying. You're an abomination to me. Why? Because they were covetous. They equated goods, materialism, the industry of this world, which God gave for a good purpose, and they spoiled it rotten. They spoiled it rotten. I tell you, Judaism was no good for the poor and the outcast. People that felt themselves to be sinners, unqualified before God. They were brushed aside because of the height of the ignorance of the Pharisees. It was right that God condemned them, and on many occasions. And he would condemn the Christian today who's got the same attitude, this bogus mentality of thinking there's something within the church. That it gotta, it's got to be me. The focus has got to be me, you see. I'll tell you. The focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ, not me or anything about me. So what God gives you, it's to be used and it's to be found praiseworthy to God. But it also adds to practical blessings because a steward, you know, let's say I give you a nice Cadillac, a beautiful Cadillac. I mean, Brother Compton's weakness was Lincoln's. He loved Lincoln's. 
And I remember a book about the millionaire next door. You know, this guy, this millionaire, he'd drive a Ford Taurus. Do you know what that is? That's a misappropriation of funds. That's what that is. That's a self-voluntary humility. That's what that is. If God's blessed you with a Lincoln Continental, you drive it. And you give praise to God about it. You don't make something out of it like it's your God. But to ride around as a millionaire in a Ford Taurus isn't right. And the same thing with God's people in the kingdom of God. You've been blessed with spiritual gifts. I don't know what they may be. Mercy helps. Gifts of public speaking, teaching, I don't know. Prayer, giving. Some people have the gifts of giving. But here you sit on those particular gifts or you hide them under a bushel. Your light that God has given you, you've concealed, you've hid. You see, you're, that's not praiseworthy to God. That's praiseworthy to yourself. That's something wrong with that. Something wrong. It's something wrong with the millionaire driving the Taurus. That's what I'm saying. Now, don't get me wrong. That's probably how he got to be a millionaire, by careful spending and good habits. I'm not saying being frivolous or being you know, just wasteful. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying if God's blessed you, live like it. Live like it. If God's blessed you with the talent of understanding His Word, live it then. Tell others about it. What's the Bible say about a particular subject? You know what it says, but you, you hide it. You see, live it out. That's, how, that's why he mentions this idea of pressing. This idea of, of pressing. Every man presseth into it. So that's the third group. I'm sorry to add. We got the disciples. We got the Pharisees. And we got everyone who's pressing into the kingdom of God. That's you and me today. We're pressing. Pressing. I like that word. Because it reminds me of what it means to make money. It's not easy. You know, I don't care whether you have a dollar or a hundred dollars in your back pocket. That doesn't come easy. You've got to work at it. You've got to press. And the same thing with the kingdom of God. These things that God has given you, the talents, you're to use them. Not easy. It's easier just to sit on them. Forget about them. Put them in the mis- misappropriate. And so anyway, this particular fellow here, this unjust steward, that's the name in which he is referred to, wasted his goods. He wasted his goods. He wasn't praiseworthy, and he didn't have any blessings in terms of providing for his owner. You see, the practical use of what God has given you redounds to God's glory. It benefits him. That's what I'm saying. In this particular case, the unjust steward benefited himself. And that in and of itself is wise, is pointed out as wise. But he was accused of something there in that he wasted his goods. He wasted his goods. Now that's an accusation. We don't know if it's true or false. I guess if you just keep it with a story, it probably would be considered true. In other words, he actually squandered his goods. Because what follows verifies exactly that. But that word accused literally, in the Greek, is another word by which we get, in the Latin, diabolus. That's the name for Satan, the devil, the archenemy of God. You know, the archenemy of God makes accusations. He's the accuser of the brethren. This man may have been innocent. I don't know. He could have been. But he was accused nevertheless. That's very interesting. If you take it on that, just the word itself. But eventually now being accused, he was now 
placed in a precarious situation. The owner has heard now of this accusation. How is it that I hear of this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship. Now that word account and stewardship all comes into the same category. In fact, last week at Columbia, I used a little bit, I wasn't anywhere close to the subject, but I did use the same text. The Apostle Paul, if you want a commentary on this particular parable found somewhere in the epistles, you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and the Apostle Paul says, let a man so account, there's the word, of us as ministers of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. So the Apostle Paul draws a parallel here from this parable. He's a steward. He's been put in trust of something far greater than any earthly rich or money or property. He was entrusted with the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And he was to be faithful in the allotment or the use. But here's the point I want to make. Paul was blessed. He was blessed in the usage of something that was praiseworthy to God. And this is why I opened up with that text in um, 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20 about how that the promises of God come to us and we use them. They're, to me, they're true. To me, I enjoy them. To me. It's like the preacher went to the, the sister who was about ready to die in the hospital. Fourth stage cancer. There was no hope. It was just a matter of time. And he asked her, how are you doing? She says, I'm bitter that it's not over yet. I'm looking forward to the kingdom that comes. You see? She was magnifying the mysteries of God. Praiseworthy. But yet, she was enjoying them. Right then and there, in her affliction... She was filled with the blessings of the promise of God. That's what it means. Those promises of God, they're not true based on that little phrase, by us. The promises of God are in Him. Amen. The fact that they're by us doesn't make them any truer. They're true. They stand alone. But by us means that we come into connection with them. And we enjoy the blessedness of it. And so if you've been entrusted as a steward of that nice shiny Lincoln or Cadillac, you can get in it and drive. And you can enjoy it, though it doesn't belong to you. You've been given it. You're to safeguard it. You've got to keep it clean. Keep the oil. Take care of it because it's not your property. But you're getting to drive it. That's the blessing of which I speak. Did the Pharisees do that? The Pharisees didn't do that. I mean, they they abused their privilege. They would never allow, they would never give a poor beggar a ride in their Cadillac. You see what I mean? All right, well, he was accused of his goods. And he called on them and said unto him, How is it that I hear, give an account of your stewardship right now, because no longer you are my steward. So take your goods, clean out your desk, and take off. Well, now he's resolved. I got a problem here. Here's my problem. What am I going to do? I can't beg. This guy's, okay, this might be a white collar crime in today's terminology. And he's not a ditch digger. He's not a tradesman. He's been sitting behind this desk 
all his life. He doesn't know how to get out there to work like you and I. He can't beg. That would be something beneath him. He would be ashamed to be a beggar. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take care of myself. And I call all these guys that owe my master money, and I sat them down in front of me, and how much do you, my master? All right, cut it back 50%, give me that, and you're clear of your debt. And so he, convo- con- um, he, he just, this, this plan he contrived worked out to his own benefit. And so out the door he went, but he was well provided for. Notice what he says here. He says, the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. He had done wisely. What happened? He was received, verse 4, into their houses. Now, you and I might not know exactly this setting. I mean, in our day and age, we are uniquely different than what took place maybe for, you know, thousands of years as we look down in the history of mankind. There was no social security, for instance. How did they do it back there? Now, some of you folks out there have mothers and fathers who went through the Depression. You know exactly what I mean. How was it for them? How did they get through the deprivation without the security blanket of the government providing for them? See, we've been, we've been, uh, we've been kind of like um, uh, you know, prepped for our old age today, and yet even that is a myth because if you look at Social Security in and of itself, the dollar value... They're in debt. For those of you 60 years old and younger, Social Security doesn't even exist for you unless they change the parameters or the ingredients or whatever makes it tick. There's nothing left in it for you if you're 60 and under. So they have to change it. It, In other words, it's, it's given out more than it takes in. And such is the government. And I like to say this, because those of you who entrust yourselves to the government, you've got to be careful. You see, what does communism do? Communism replaces God with government. That's what it does. That's exactly what it does. Communism kicks God out of its platform. It certainly does. It doesn't want anything to do with God. Now, you don't need to be educated by me on that. It's very well known what communism does. It incorporates central government to provide for the masses. It promises something, but it never delivers. It never does fully deliver. What delivers is your faith in God. What delivers and will take care of you is the same thing we prayed for with this couple this morning. That God would provide, that God would protect, that God would nourish that God would enhance, that God would bless, that God would bear fruit in their lives. I mean, our day and age, there's such a cultural misappropriation that we tend to get the lines all muddied. And we don't know where the source of our help comes from. We don't look to the Lord. In fact, He's in the back seat. And this is very important in understanding this parable. Because the Lord's going to draw some things for us to help us along the way in understanding the situation. Notice in verse 8, here's the, as I mentioned, here's the shock value. Because the Lord commends this contriving of the unjust steward. 
of this, this guy going to write off my, my Lord's debts so that I can benefit myself. He commends him, but he doesn't commend him for the action itself. That's very important. He doesn't give praise to the actual embezzlement. That's what it is. If you think about the word in our, in our in language today, it might be called embezzlement. And the Lord is not commending that at all. But what he is commending, he's commending the wisdom. Now that word wise, he had done wisely, is a word that is used elsewhere. Like in Matthew chapter 10, when the Lord said to his disciples, he said, be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. In other words, to be cunning, to be intelligent, to be shrewd. You're to be shrewd. You know, what God has given you is not to be squandered. You're to be shrewd with what God has given you. To be smart, to be intelligent. And in fact, the other parables, like the parables of the pounds and the parable of the talents, are parables that speak of spiritual dividends. And the Lord was highly upset when he gave ten particular people each a pound. And when he came back to retrieve, some of them didn't provide any usury or any benefit, any additional income with the pound that they received. And he was wroth. One guy earned ten pounds on one, one guy earned fifty, or, and one guy put it in the dirt. You know, he was, af- he was afraid to invest what the... His Lord had given him. And so what's true of money and how important it is in terms of our responsibility with it, and quite frankly now this is where I need to come in at. I think if nobody showed up this morning, I'd still preach this because I need to hear it more than anybody else. You know, I've been that little tree for so long, I really never blossomed. I'm still trying to figure it out. Because why? Because the materialism in this world has got me all mixed up, you see. The Bible sets us straight on these things. And this is a practical advice for all of us. It's never too late to learn God's Word. It's never too late to take into practice what God's Word teaches. So anyway, he says, you're very wise. Be as wise as serpents. Be cunning. Be crafty. Be smart. For the children, then he presents this this two humanities. He's setting something forth that we cannot at all forget. Probably one of the most important aspects here. What this unjust steward did was something that is contributed toward the other side, if you will, the dark side. Who he is, what he belonged to. He's going to pit him against the children of light. He's drawing two worlds here. He said... For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. The children of this world, why are they wiser? Because everything is about this time world. And they're working hard to keep whatever they have and to get whatever they don't. They're working day and night. They're contriving means whereby they can enrich themselves. They live today. They eat. And drink, for tomorrow they die. The mentality, which is recognized by the Lord, is something that fits this time world. And he pits that with the children of light. I always remember asking one particular minister what he did in life. You know, he was up, I won't mention his name, because many of them say the same thing. 
said, well, I sold insurance, but I really didn't sell too much of it. It reminded me of a time when I heard the church bells ringing. I had a commitment on a job to do, and the guy fired me because I went to church. Sometimes we can be so heavenly-minded that we're, excuse me, no earthly good. Is that the way it was? But anyway, this poor soldier of the cross, he just never did make a good insurance salesman because he was always going to church. And so I see and realize, uh, you know, there is a difficulty involved with trying to live in this world and gain while living mindset in the other world. You know, we're thinking about the lights as we sung that hymn. And sometimes we, I've been on the road and missed exits. I'm here, I'm going to a job. I'm supposed to be there at a certain time and I'm thinking about some scripture and there goes my exit. So I'm not saying that you won't have some fallout in this thing. There certainly is some fallout. There's no doubt about it. But you know, sometimes God turns that around for good. I remember the time Brother Compton was telling me he had a certain property down there in uh, Chantilly. And this was before Dulles Airport really got going. In fact, maybe, you know, when it was all nothing but farmland. And Brother Condon and his brother bought, you know, 40 acres to farm. Do nothing more than farm because that's what they did when they were a kid. They had a blast. Eventually a turf farm, as Brother Danny was questioning, what might a turf farm be? 40 acres. So somebody said, you know, I need a right-of-way to your property. Brought Brother Compton into his office. Brother Compton, Jim Compton, I got $90,000 right here for you. Just give me the right-of-way. Brother Compton stood up and said, you know, I'm running late. I got to go to church. I'll see you later. Oh, my goodness. He, he could have had a $90,000 check back in those days for nothing but a right-of-way to that property. But he was so determined not to miss the meeting at Landmark and he had to get in his car and run. So the next week came by. The guy behind the desk pulled out a check. All right, Compton, this is it. I'm going to give you 125000 So he made money because he went to church. See how God can turn things around for your profit? When you put the kingdom of God first and his righteousness? Yes, sir. God is the chief architect in your life. One thing about money throughout the Bible is that God is the giver of all good things. And that's the seventh verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 in which Paul speaks about being a steward of the mysteries of God. What is it that you have that you have not received? All right. Well, we're going to move on here because we're talking about this children of light, children of darkness, children of the world, children of God's kingdom. He refers to these Pharisees in another place as those who were from beneath. He said, I'm from above, but ye are of this world. I am not of this world, he said. See how he pits one against the other? He said in verse 44 of John 8, ye are of your father, the devil. And so there's offspring, literally, of the devil, you could say. And there's offspring of God, born of the Spirit, begotten by God, you see. And God borns again his people, and we are his children. And we live by a different set of rules altogether. But we're in the world. We're still in the world. God didn't just rapture us out of the world when he born us again by his spirit. We still are living in this world. And here comes the practicality of this text. We're in the world, but we're not of it. We're not of it. The things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, 
Lust of the eyes. All these things, they're not of the Father, they are of the world. But we're passing through. And the Lord now is giving us some pretty good advice on how to get through. Now, the way to get through is not to build out that little cubbyhole somewhere in the North African Alps or wherever they might be and hide and live a, a life of separatism, monotheism, you know, like you're it, nobody else is concerned, you know, that you're hiding, like I had mentioned earlier. That's not the way it is. We're in the world, we're passing through, and we're to be as wise in this world as that unjust steward. However, the energy and the focus has to be on God. Here's the difference. Now, I can relate to this. You know, on, on Monday morning, I have to be somewhere. I'm going to devote myself to every ounce of vigor I have and passion. Make sure the tank is fueled. Make sure I got my work clothes on, my tools are ready, everything's set, the appointment's been made. I better show up on time. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to use all my energy and focus for these accomplishments. Now, you compare that or parallel that to the church. Well, let's see, it's Sunday morning. I'm running late. You know, and so the Lord, all He is saying is basically take that earthly treasure and apply it to the kingdom. And that's what He's talking about, basically. But He does have some shock values, as we read now, in terms of this idea of this uh, world in which we live. He said in verse 9, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Now, this particular text, if you read different people, listen to different people, I've got some favorites out there that I've listened to on this, and quite frankly, I'm very disappointed. Because it looks like, from the vantage point, that what we do in making friends of the people of the world, somehow we are populating heaven. And that's exactly what they said. It's disappointing. Even some strong Calvinistic sovereign grace Baptists have referred to this text as a way by which we introduce people through means of money, the kingdom of God, and increase population of heaven. No, we know that's not, that, that would be works, isn't it? That's, that's works. That's not salvation by grace. We'd have to erase some of the scriptures in the Bible if that was true. You know, like we've been bought not with the silver and gold. Well, that, we'd have to get rid of that verse altogether. In 1 Peter 1, I think it's 18. I think we'd have to get rid of that. Because money is important. And money would help us along to God. The other guy said, well, what this means is by spending money for God and for the kingdom of God, when we get to heaven, we'll have our friends meet us at the gate, welcome us into eternal habitations. No, that's not correct either. We have to realize that the translators back in the day were not infected by the virus of Arminianism. Like, like today, many of our theologians today, Bible readers, Bible students, are infected by a virus called Arminianism. Somehow it's my work, my effort, whatever I do that lands me safe on Canaan's coast. And I'm not talking about some seashore down here. No, it's not our works. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. It's very simple. And so, to understand this text, to understand what the translators are trying to convey, and what they're trying to convey is this, 
that we're to spend our money for the benefit of others. That's what it means by making friends. You spend what God has given you for the blessings of others. That's what Paul said. He said, let us do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. So what God has given you, he's given you for a purpose of benefiting others. John tells about those who do not display the love of God. How is it that they do not display the love of God? They shut their bowels of mercy up. Up. God's blessed them, but they're just as happy as driving that Ford Taurus and not sharing any of that wealth with God's people. And they're shutting themselves up in terms of their servitude. They're serving mammon and not God. That's basically what it means by making friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. He's not telling you to go out into the sin-cursed bars of this world and make friends with the workers of iniquity. It's not what he's saying. In fact, we're supposed to understand the distinction between the children of light and the children of darkness. We're to understand that distinction. That cultural divide should be apparent in our lives. Psalms 17, I think, is a great text here for this. This particular cultural divide between good and evil is throughout the Scriptures. This is nothing new to you all. Notice what David said, verse 14 of 17 of Psalm, "...from men which are of thy hand..." Notice who's the giver of all life, God. How many of us, I was on the back porch this morning drinking my cup of coffee with my wife. And I was looking at the squirrels, the birds flying. The blossoms on the crepe myrtle were in full bloom. You know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about the God who gives all these things for us to richly enjoy them. How beautiful is creation. Just amazing. It's a marvel. I mean, he made a squirrel, and I was watching this squirrel jump from limb to limb. And, you know, why is it that he made it that way? Well, I don't know. His imagination is pretty deep. It's just beautiful. He can jump. He can fly almost. And then there's the dog, almost inches of trying to capture this thing. Just amazing what creatures do in displaying the magnificence of the mind of God as a creator. Well, men by nature don't recognize that. They're too busy, aren't they? Distracted by the things of the world. They don't know that men which are thy hand. That's what he's saying here. We are out of thy hand. God gives life. He's the giver, the author, the sustainer. Who we are is by the sovereign work of a creator God. All men, whether in the unjust steward or the faithful disciples, who might I had, and just, you know, wasn't long ago they would call it a perverse generation, okay? So sometimes we mirror that divide. Sometimes we don't bear the spot of his children. And sometimes we mimic and mirror that which is in the world. You can't tell us apart from one or the other. God says you're not walking the right path. You're not walking the narrow path. You're walking that, long, that wide path that leads to destruction. That's an, an admonition, admonition, excuse me, an ad... Help me, brother. Admonition for the children of God. All right, see how easily I'm confused? He said in verse 14, From men which are thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world... David's recognizing that there's men of the world. He said, which have their portion in this life and whose belly thou fillest 
with thy hid treasure. They are full of children. That's what he's talking about, how blessed they are. The men of this world, they have their portion. But they're of this world. They live and they die. But they use the world. They're in this world. They're children of this world. They leave the rest of their substance to their babes. In other words, they work hard, they produce, they accumulate, and then when they die, they give it to their children. That's what works. That's how it works. As for me, he says, now watch this. He's drawing a contrast. How's David thinking? David thinks completely different. He's drawing a contrast. He says, I will behold thy face in righteousness. Now, he's not in heaven yet, is he? But he's beholding the righteousness of God. He said, I shall be satisfied when I awake in thy likeness. In other words, he is recognizing that there's a spiritual world and that there's a material world. He said, I belong to the spiritual world. I'm reading Pilgrim's Progress again, anew. In one particular episode in the interpreter's house, is the interpreter takes Christian, the pilgrim, to this wall. And this wall has got a fire and there's somebody, a bad guy, at this fire throwing, trying to put it out with water. But it won't. It keeps growing hotter and higher. Until the interpreter takes Christian and he takes him behind the wall. And behind the wall there's a man there. The man. The Lord Jesus. Who is putting oil on the fire that it won't go out. The accuser of the brethren is trying to quench the flames in your heart. The accuser is full of distractions, a myriad of distractions today more than ever that are trying to rob, he's trying to rob you, as Brother Mark had made mention, trying to rob you of the spiritual blessings afforded you by God's sovereign hand. But by the grace of God, those distractions will never outweigh, never fully and finally take away the Holy Spirit which is in your heart. That whole house of the interpreter is a picture of these beautiful aspects of being able as a child of God to see the unseen hand that feeds us. That's what we're about. When we come to the house of God, we're viewing by faith the unseen world, Beulah land. And we're being blessed as we're lifted up as we see behind the curtain and we see things that are real and genuine the things that are fully substantive, things that are not material, but spiritual in nature. Oh, the material world. How about Madonna and the material girl? She owns up to it. She speaks of the young men around her in her life, and she sings the song, They can beg and they can plead, but they can't see the light. That's right, she says. Because the boy with the cold, hard cash is always Mr. Right. And then she owns up to her world when she says, because we are living in a material world and I am a material girl. You know that we are living in a material world and I am a material girl. What are you this morning? Are you a material man or a woman? Or are you a spiritual like David? You see beyond the curtain. You measure eternal things. You see the man behind the wall. You see the Lord high and lifted up. I'm going to close with these three points because they're right in our text, and that is this. How is it that we can be good stewards of what God has given us? 
He says in verse 10, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. In terms of what you have spiritually, I'm going to just up, just position this against that which is physical. If God has given you a dollar or God has given you a hundred, it makes no difference from God's viewpoint. Now, it may to us, because money answers to all things. And the more we have, the more we can answer for. And it's a good thing. God is the giver of all good things, which he gives us to richly enjoy. Don't ever deny that. Jesus is not looking a blind eye toward money. He's just saying, make the right category. Use it properly for God and not for yourself. What that unjust steward did, he did it for himself. You do it for God. And this is what I mean, that he is to be faithful, faithful toward God. So whether you have one dollar or whether you have a hundred, it makes no difference in God's viewpoint. But you use that dollar for God's glory or use that hundred for God's glory. You help those who are in need. You provide for those who have particular needs at hand. And also just for the kingdom's sake, Brother Oscar, Sister Larry. Remember them? They were members here at Mount Carmel. If you went to their home, you'd walk up the, set of the second floor into the attic. It was completely finished and furnished. It was furnished with like 10 or 15 beds up there, you know, single beds. So when they had a meeting here, like they did in 1957, when I was about six months old, and Brother Pat Bird was preaching from this pulpit right here, only it was looking that way or this way, all the folks that came in from out of town, including Pat Bird, were staying right there in that attic. They used what God gave them for the kingdom of the Lord. And many of you in this house today have done just that. And you know what the Lord's doing? He's commending you today for your wisdom, for your intelligence, for your prudence. Your prudence. Prudence is a financial term. This man was prudent. In other words, he was taking every necessary precaution in order to provide for himself. This is a good thing. God said in Ephesians chapter 1 that he's abounded. He's abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. God has taken every... He's, he's the great risk manager. The Lord has guaranteed that his investment will not fail. God has guaranteed that the blood that he shed on our behalf was very effective. Very effective. He's abounded toward us in that way. And we are to be like God in that sense. In other words, we're to be children of God, children of the light. And we are to use what God has given us in a prudent fashion. fashion. In other words, we don't we don't uh, exalt ourselves. The errors, there's errors in this as we think about stewardship. What are some of the errors? Well, I think we can be, we can be wasteful. And we can squander what God has given us. I think more of us are guilty of that than anybody in the history of mankind. This generation, with what we've been giving, you know, in terms of financial blessings, we've squandered more than we've used for the kingdom of God's sake. And what we've squandered uh, in terms of leaving it uh, for 
uh, uh, misuse of funds or something like that instead of using for God's kingdom. Same thing here. We've squandered our talents. We've squandered everything. See this, the parallel? We can also hoard it. I mean, that's in there, don't you? Some people hoard things. I was in a home this week. I mean, every square inch of that place had something in it. And it was beautiful something. Everything. Valuable things. Things. I just kept my blinders on. I didn't want to see it all. You know, I didn't want to live in that material world just for an instant. I had a job to do and that's what I kept to it. Remind me the days when I was in the military. And I was around... Things that I can't speak about. I had to keep my blinders on. Don't look. Don't stare. When I have young men working in people's homes that are very well off, I tell them right at the outset, don't stare and don't ooh and ah. You're about your business. And if you want to express any attitude, express it toward God. Say, thank God that He gives men richly things in this life to enjoy. That's the attitude you're to have. Not only for others, but for yourself. All right, we can squander, we can hoard, and we can do a variety of things with money. We can forget who owns it. One of the chief points of this particular parable is to recognize that it is God that gives us richly to enjoy these things. It's not by your industry by which you've acquired this thing unless God blesses you. You can spin your web and never really become fruitful at it. God must give you the increase. And so commit yourself and your stewardship to the Lord God Almighty. All right, the key here in our text is very simple. And it can be attributed to the word joy. Here's another acronym. Joy. Jesus, ourselves, excuse me, others, and yourself. Joy. J-O-Y. And it's what's being taken place here by the unjust steward, uh, excuse me, by the Lord's people, the children of light, in comparison, when he says for you to make your, to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. The fact is that you will, or what you have, will fail. I don't know if it's really the correct uh, rendition of the original In the original, it actually says when it fails, but the point is made in verse 17, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass. So whatever is a part of this material world, you included, in terms of your flesh, will ultimately fail. But the point is that we measure it against the permanency of God's blessings. And of course, in this case, it would be the everlasting habitation. Because that word everlasting simply means the perpetual security of the things in relationship to this world. Now, there are some things that will outlive us. You know, and that is basically the age. That's the way the word is. The word is basically the age, the age of this world, which is next to us, secure, permanent. And so the way it works is that you're to go through this life with all the honest industry as possible and doing good to others so that when things go wrong, if they should go wrong, as they ultimately will, as materialism is fleeting, is temporal at best, that you can have security within the household of faith. I think it's primarily the meaning here. I think if you go beyond that, you're going in places where 
The text is not. It's a perpetual blessings of security, especially in the days when they didn't have government-run insurance, government-run health care, government-run social security, and all the things that we're privy to to this day. And so to be faithful stewards in what God has given us. Verse 12, if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's. That's the import here. What God has given you is something that belongs to him. It doesn't belong to you. And so when we look at what God has given us, we need to realize that whatever you have, it belongs to God. It's got his stamp of authority. If you look at a beautiful portrait, the owner's signature is on the right side. It marks his authority. And whatever you have, if you look close, look close to what you have. Look close at your bank account. Look close at the blessings you've been provided. And you'll see God's stamp on it. God owns it. He owns all houses, fields, and lands. God approves it well, you see, by loaning it to you so that you use it for His kingdom's sake and for His glory. Well, the last thing here, if you notice, is that this contributes towards service to God. Notice what He says. No servant can serve two masters. And so what we're talking about today is primarily who you are a slave to. And this is what I mean earlier when we cross the patterns of this world and the kingdom world. When we get them mixed up. We get them so mixed up that we're, you know, God's beside us instead of in front of us. We're serving Satan instead of God. We're serving mammon of unrighteousness. He calls it unrighteousness only because it's a material thing. It's got nothing to do with iniquity in and of itself. It's just something that pertains to this time world. But we're to use it properly and in the right position. And so if I had a dollar bill this morning, and if I could take it out of my pocket this morning. Let's see if I've got one. Yes. Surprise, surprise. Now, we can live two different ways. Two different ways. We can place it right here or right here. Same difference. So in our heart, we can make it our master. We can serve it. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's a blessing provided by God. All the Lord is teaching us here in this particular passage as we put it in the right place. Belongs in my pocket. But in my heart, we're to serve God. And may the Lord bless you. May your treasures be in heaven where neither moth or rust can destroy We're glad you've been able to listen to this special podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.